Hello and welcome to Tea and Old Books. This is day 66 of the Spanish lockdown and we are currently reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Today's episode is very special because we have our very first guest on Tea and Old Books. My friend Duncan is joining me to discuss the book so far, to read the next chapter and then discuss with me that chapter. In today's episode, Duncan will be reading the first chapter of part two of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Continue listening for more. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Good. Hi, Duncan. Welcome to Tea and Old Books. And thank you for joining me and for reading a chapter. Thank you for the invitation. I'm a little sad, though, because I think you read it better than me, frankly. No. <laughs> <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> maybe your accent, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe just like having like a deep male voice, maybe, for all of the male characters. I yeah, think exactly. Added something to it. I think that probably probably helps that it's uh, yeah the, uh, the 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 complete lack of any female characters probably makes it easier to read as male and yeah. <laughs> oh, I know, right? Like, I don't know. I I shouldn't really be surprised by this. Like, you know, I I knew kind of what I was getting into, but I kind of thought there'd be at least one mm. at some point, maybe, or at least at least one mentioned. But I don't think there's even been any mention of any women, like at all, in the whole of part one. I think you are 100% correct. Yeah. Yeah. This book is not doing well for the Bachelor test. And neither was the last one, frankly. Ugh. No, I'm like, yeah, I didn't make it through the, the whole of the last one. I'm going to confess. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't even make it all the way through, and I was reading it. I mean, I kind of did, but I had to skip through. But we're not talking about that. That's, that's, no, that's past. We're talking about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, and, and part one. So we finished part one now. So I'm, I'm interested to hear like your thoughts on, on part one of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I have some that we'll come to, but what, what's your impression so far? So... I, I've really been enjoying it. Um, in particular, I love um, all of the, the detailed scientific descriptions of uh, sort of 19th century science fiction. Like I love this, uh, what is it, electric, uh, I can't remember exactly what's the phrase, but like these electrical fibers or electrical wires yeah. that can sort of extend to infinite length such that a, uh, you know, a boat can sail powered by one and, uh, and always find its way back to the Nautilus. And uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I love all of that, like just the these these sort of and the the idea that you can you know use the sodium in the sea to create an infinite amount of uh, of electricity. It's <laughs> oh, yeah, that's amazing. Like they're just using the sodium to make electricity. I'm like, oh, it's so easy. Why don't we all do this? I really love it. Yeah, and, and then yeah. and then the other thing that I, I've I've really been enjoying is the fact that like there's all these you know detailed descriptions of sea sea creatures, but but inevitably uh, ultimately it comes down to how good does it taste uh, when you eat oh, it. Oh yes. <laughs> That was one of my points I've written here. Why are they eating everything? Like everything they find, you always get a description of like how the flavor is or how well it cooks or how much it's like some land beast they also ate. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, working their way through everything. It's either how how good it tastes or how much you can sell it for when you sell it to a collector. Yeah, Those yeah, are the yeah. only things that are really interesting. Yeah, they talk about what is it, ecosystem services these days. I guess that's uh, this is at its uh, at its most sort of uh, full um, expression. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm loving the sense that I, I feel like I'm learning things about the ocean. I'm not sure that they're actually true or real, and I need to. I keep meaning to look this up. Whether these animals are real, were they real in the 19th century? Are they real now? I mean, I don't even know. He could yeah, be making. Definitely, and it's a, it's a, there's some good tongue twisters in there as well with the with the Latin names. Like, uh, I oh. no idea how to pronounce half of them, but it's a good it's good fun trying until I, I sort of ambush you on a page turn yeah. or something. Yeah. I know, and because like you're reading it just in the moment, and like you turn the page and you just see these really long words, and you're like, oh no, why this is going to be awful? Yeah. And I have a friend who is a scientist, and she has just been laughing at my pronunciation of everything throughout this entire book. I just have her <laughs> mockery endlessly for <laughs> the way that I'm saying everything. I'm saying everything wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's, I, I think it's excusable. It's, it's they're, they're ridiculous. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yes. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so some of my questions I have from part one so far. So, and I'm interested to see you all like hear your take on these. So mm. my main one is like, what is Nemo doing? Like he has nefarious plot. I'm pretty sure, but like, what exactly is his motivation like? I mean, he hates society, but what is he doing on this strange underwater ship, staffed with people speaking a strange language? What do you think he's up to? I think he's the like. This is he's sort of like the pre, the, the I don't know what the right term is. The precursor to all James Bond villains, really, isn't he? He's like this really dapper kind of guy who's uh, who's you know going around in this under underwater lair, um, doing some kind of. Yeah unknown nefarious deeds yeah i i honestly i think he's motivated by revenge yes but i have no idea what the revenge is for yet yeah yeah Yeah, like is it something specific that happened like um society killed his only love or is it just sort of general revenging that he's had a hard time with it i mean also like how did he make his money like he's super rich yeah yeah i mean i yeah how did he make his money maybe yeah. well he knows a lot about electricity about about science maybe he was like a, mm-hmm. a, a railway tycoon or something Is oh yeah maybe he could have been a robber yeah, or a ship tycoon or something like yeah. Yeah. yeah or owns a gold mine maybe something like that um also like i'm curious about his crew like so he's he's his ship is staffed by all these men none yeah. of whom have names they all speak a strange language, but they look Anglo-Saxon to Pierre. Um, yeah. But where, where do they come from? Why are they working for him? Because, like, they just have to stay in the ship until they die, and then they get buried in the coral, like, graveyard. I have no idea who they are, but I just imagine them all wearing sort of those, those like, suits from Steve Zizou's Life, Life Aquatic, <laughs> wandering yeah. around. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, yes. I'm also, like, <laughs> I'm not convinced there's more than five of them either, like, because there's the sergeant and there's the dude who dies, but, like, who else is even on this ship? I don't know if there's actually that many people. No, I think exactly. it's just Nemo and, like, three other guys. It's such a brilliant, like, just the whole idea is brilliant. I love it. <laughs> it's so, so eccentric. It's great. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I like as well how, like, Nemo, you know, like you say, he's like a Bond villain, but he's kind of like... You know, um, in the Simpsons episode, when you've got Scorpio, who's, you know, a villain, but he's got a heart of gold because, you know, he's quite, you know, he's quite, Nemo is, has, does have his good parts. Yeah. It's good. 
like when he's you know telling off Pierre for being a bit racist against the natives. Yeah. yeah, true, true. Yeah, yeah, and he's got his massive library filled with all the best books, but he's not going to buy any new ones. Those are all the ones he's interested in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he knows what he wants, and he 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 he's you know that's it. The rest of society yeah. is you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So ooh, my other questions, let's see, what do they have? Ah, so um, so I'm very much shipping Pierre and Nemo together. So I think they've got a bit of a crush on each other. Um, um yeah, yeah. yeah, think that's you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. I mean I'm definitely sure that there must be some like twenty thousand leagues under the thieves fan fiction. And my mission for tomorrow, I think, is to find them. <laughs> And maybe I'll just read that. Maybe I'll just switch to reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea fan fiction because I'm sure it's amazing. <laughs> I love that idea. That is a really great idea. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we should challenge, challenge your listeners to write in with some. <gasps> It'd be amazing. I was like, because I've been listening today, I've been listening to um, the podcast Secret Dinosaur Cult. And as part of that, they read out fan fiction about dinosaurs. And it's oh, amazing. amazing. It's like dinosaur erotica. It's so good. Oh my god! <laughs> and then and then they can talk to me about it because it's so so fun. <laughs> That's perfect. I mean, I think you've got a whole concept there. Oh my god! My <laughs> um, <laughs> only other thing that I wanted to talk to you about because, like, I you know I don't have that many people to have this com these conversations with, frankly, because you know being locked in. Locked in yeah. But um, like, so I think it was the last chapter, like, well, two chapters ago or something. Like, it was revealed that Pierre is a medical doctor. Well, you know, these, these 19th century types, like they were all, they did everything, right? You know, I, I was, know. I didn't even I know. So. It was just like, I didn't even yeah, was. reading to just like exclaim my disbelief at the fact that Pierre suddenly has a medical degree. I mean, to be fair, like, who knows what they actually knew about it at, at that point? Like, maybe, maybe it's, oh, yes, yeah, so that's clearly the brain. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he's like, he's going to die. I mean, I feel like anyone that you pulled in could have done that one and like redress the bandages but anyway yeah oh i forgot to mention um so today is day 66 in spain lockdown mm -hmm. days do you and you're in the uk do you know what day you're on at the moment uh no <laughs> no i don't it hasn't been as i mean it definitely hasn't been as uh been as uh, rigorous uh, in the uk um for for better or for worse um so yeah uh, it's it sort of I haven't haven't felt that felt the same sort of need to maybe keep a keep a diary. Um, mm -hmm. but, yeah, let's see. When because when did you start? It was on the March, oh, uh, March the something fifteenth. Oh, I don't even know. I was it's, March the fifteenth, and it's the same as us. So oh no, it's before that. March the eleventh. It's something along the beginning of March. I mean, the only reason I know the day is because I've been doing this podcast and saying the day every day. Yeah. Uh, that's the only reason I know the number. I, mean, I have but, to say, um, this, is anyway. a very, this is a very dedicated way of, of counting. I'm, I'm... It is, isn't it? Yeah. I, yeah. yeah I think, <laughs> someone, yeah. someone resorts to sort of scratches on the wall. But, yeah. <laughs> it's feeling a bit like that at times. Like, I didn't really plan for it to be this long, you know, honestly. Maybe you could, but, do, count of, anyway. maybe you could do Count of Monte Cristo next or something. It'd be a... Oh my god, I love the Count. The problem is, I was trying to do books that I haven't read, and I've read The Count of Monte Cristo. Mm. It's one of my favorite books. Oh, fair enough. Um, but maybe I should do it anyway. Like maybe you know, I feel like I've been burned with Wilkie Collins um, <laughs> and the Dead Sea. That I should maybe just do books that I know are good. <laughs> just yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the same problems with some French in that one as well, though. But we're going to stop talking now because we're going to have you read aloud the second well this, the beginning of the second part chapter one 
and then we're going to discuss it afterwards. Sounds good. All right, let's do that. So, part two of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Uh, chapter one, The Indian Ocean. Uh, but first, as I believe is customary on this podcast, I should tell you about the tea that I'm drinking, which in this case is a tea made from dried limes uh, called Numi Basra, or Chai Numi Basra, um, that I was introduced to by my friend from Iraq, and it's absolutely delicious, and I drink it with just a little bit of sugar. Um, so I'm just going to stir that into my tea. And then get cracking on part two of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So chapter one, the Indian Ocean. We now come to the second part of our journey under the sea. The first ended with the moving scene in the Coral Cemetery, which left such a deep impression on my mind. Thus, in the midst of this great sea, Captain Nemo's life was passing, even to his grave, which he prepared in one of its deepest abysses. There, not one of the ocean's monsters could trouble the last sleep of the crew of the Nautilus, of those friends riveted to each other in death as in life. Nor any man either, had added the captain. Still, the same fierce, implacable defiance of towards human society. I could no longer content myself with the theory which satisfied Conseil. That worthy fellow persisted in seeing the commander of the Nautilus, one of those unknown savants, who return mankind contempt for indifference. For him, he was a misunderstood genius who, tired of the earth's deceptions, had taken refuge in this inaccessible medium where he might follow his instincts freely. To my mind, this explains but one side of Captain Nemo's character. Indeed, the mystery of that last night during which we had been chained in prison, the sleep and the precaution so violently taken by the captain of snatching from my eyes the glass I had raised to sweep the horizon, the mortal wound of the man due to an unaccountable shock of the Nautilus, all put me on a new track. No, Captain Nemo was not satisfied with shunning man. His formidable apparatus not only suited his instinct of freedom, but perhaps also the design of some terrible retaliation. At this moment, nothing is clear to me. I catch but a glimpse of light amidst all the darkness, and I must confine myself to writing as events shall dictate. That day, the 24th of January, 1868, at noon, the second officer came to take the altitude of the sun. I mounted the platform, lit a cigar, and watched the operation. It seemed to me that the man did not understand French, for several times I made remarks in a loud voice, which must have drawn from him some involuntary sign of attention, if he had understood them, but he remained undisturbed and dumb. As he was taking observations with the sextant, one of the sailors of the Nautilus, the strong man who had accompanied us on our first submarine excursion to the island of Crespo, came to clean the glasses of the lantern. I examined the fittings of the apparatus, the strength of which was increased a hundredfold by lenticular rings placed similar to those in a lighthouse and which projected their brilliance in a horizontal plane. The electric lamp was combined in such a way as to give its most powerful light. Indeed, it was produced in vacuo, 
which ensured both its steadiness and its intensity. This vacuum economized the graphite points between the luminous arc, between which the luminous arc was developed, an important point for eco of economy to Captain Nemo, who could not easily have replaced them, and under these conditions their waste was imperceptible. When the Nautilus was ready to continue its submarine journey, I went down to the saloon. The panel was closed, and the course marked direct west. We were furrowing the waters of the Indian Ocean, a vast liquid plain, with a surface of 1.2 billion, yes, that's the right number of zeros, 1.2 billion of acres, and whose waters are so clear and transparent that anyone leaning over them would turn giddy. The Nautilus usually floated between 50 and 100 fathoms deep. We went on for some days. To anyone but myself, who had a great love for the sea, the hours would have seemed long and monotonous, but the daily walks on the platform when I steeped myself in the reviving air of the ocean, the sight of the rich waters through the windows of the salon, the books in the library, the compiling of my memoirs all took up my time and left me not a moment of ennui or weariness. For some days we saw a great number of aquatic birds, sea mews or gulls. Some were cleverly killed and prepared in a certain way, made very acceptable water game. Amongst larger wing, large winged birds, carried a long distance from all lands and resting upon the waves from the fatigue of their flight, I saw some magnificent alb albatrosses uttering discordant cries like the braying of an ass, and birds belonging to the family of the long wings. As to the fish, they always provoked their admiration when we surprised the secrets of their aquatic life through the open panels. I saw many kinds which I never before had the chance of observing. I shall notice chiefly ostracians peculiar to the Red Sea, I have no idea what an ostracian is, the Indian Ocean, and that part which washes the coast of tropical America. These fishes, like the tortoise, the armadillo, the sea hedgehog, and the crustacea, are protected by a breastplate which is neither chalky nor stony, but real bone. In some it takes the form of a solid triangle, in others of a solid quadrangle. Amongst the triangular I saw some an inch and a half in length, with wholesome flesh and a delicious flavour. They are brown at the tail, and yellow at the fins, and I recommended their introduction into fresh water, to which a certain number of sea fish easily accustom themselves. I would also mention quadrangular illustrations, having on the back four large tubercles, some dotted over with white spots in the lower part of the body, and which may be tamed like birds. Trigons provided with spikes formed by the lengthening of their bony shell, and which, from their strange gruntings, are called sea pigs. Also, dromedaries with large humps in the shape of a cone, whose flesh is very tough and leathery. I now borrow from the daily notes of Master Conseil. Certain fish of the genus Petrodon, peculiar to those seas, with red backs and white chests, which are distinguished by three rows of longitudinal filaments and some electrical, seven inches long, decked in the liveliest colours. Then, as specimens of other kinds, some ovoids, resembling an egg of a dark brown colour, marked with white bands and without tails, diadons, real sea porcupines, furnished with spikes, and capable of swelling in such a way as to look like cushions bristling with darts, hippocampi, common to every ocean, some pegasi with lengthened snouts, which their pectoral fins, being much elongated and formed in the shape of wings, allow, if not to fly, at least to shoot into the air, P. 
pigeon spatulae with tails covered with many rings of shell, macronuffy with long jaws, an excellent fish, nine inches long and bright with most agreeable colours, pale coloured calliamores with rugged heads and plenty of cheap chaetodons. Let me try that again. Chaetodons with long and tubular muzzles which kill insects by shooting them as from an air gun with a single drop of water. These we may call the flycatchers of the seas. In the 89th genus of fishes, classed by Lacibidae, belonging to the second lower class of bony, characterised by opercules and bronchial membranes, I remarked the scorpena, the head of which is furnished with spikes, and which has but one dorsal fin. These creatures are covered, or not, with little shells, according to the subclass to which they belong. The second subclass gives us specimens of didactyles, 14 or 15 inches in length, with yellow rays and heads of a most fantastic appearance. As to that first subclass, it gives several specimens of that singular-looking fish, appropriately called a sea frog, with large head and sometimes pierced with holes, sometimes swollen with protuberances, bristling with spikes and covered with tubercles. It has irregular and hideous horns. Its body and tail are covered with callosities. Its sting makes a dangerous wound, and it is both repugnant and horrible to look at. From the 21st to the 23rd of January, the Nautilus went at the rate of 250 leagues in 24 hours, being 540 miles or 22 miles an hour. If we recognise so many different varieties of fish, it was because, attracted by the electric light, they tried to follow us. The greater part, however, were soon distanced by our speed, though some kept their place in the waters of the Nautilus for a time. The morning of the 24th, in 12 degrees 5 minutes south latitude and 93 degrees 33 seconds long, or minutes long, sorry, we observed Keeling Island, a coral formation planted with magnificent cocos, cocos and which had been visited by Mr. Darwin and Captain Fitzroy. The Nautilus skirted the shores of this desert island with, for a little distance. Its nets brought up numerous specimens of polypi and curious shells of mollusca. Some precious productions of a species of delphinulae enriched the treasures of Captain Nemo, to which I added an Astrea punctifera, a kind of parasite polypus often found fixed to a shell. Soon Keeling Island disappeared from the horizon, and our course was directed to the northwest in the direction of the Indian Peninsula. From Keeling Island, our course was slower and more variable, often taking us into great depths. Several times they made use of the inclined planes which certain internal levers placed obliquely to the waterline. In that way, we went about two miles, but without ever obtaining the greatest depths of the Indian Sea, which soundings of 7,000 fathoms have never reached. As to the temperature of the lower strata, the thermometer invariably indicated four degrees above zero. I only observed that in the higher regions of water, it was always colder, oh, sorry, in the upper regions, the water was always colder in the high levels than at the surface of the sea. On the 25th of January, the ocean was entirely deserted. The Nautilus passed the day on the surface, beating the waves with its powerful screw and making them rebound to a great height. Who, under such circumstances, would not have taken it for a gigantic cetacean? 
Three parts of this day I spent on the platform. I watched the sea, nothing on the horizon until about four o'clock a steamer running west on our counter. Her masts were visible for an instant, but she could not see the Nautilus being too low in the water. I fancied this steamboat belonged to the P.O. Company, which runs from Ceylon to Sydney, touching at King George's Point in Melbourne. At five o'clock in the evening, before that fleeting twilight which binds night to day in tropical zones, Conseil and I were astonished by a curious spectacle. It was a shoal of Argonauts travelling along on the surface of the ocean. We could count several hundreds. They belonged to the tubercle kind, which are peculiar to the Indian seas. These graceful mollusks moved backwards by means of their locomotive tube, through which they propelled the water already drawn in. Of their eight tentacles, six were elongated and stretched out, floating on the water, whilst the other two, rolled up flat, were spread to the wing, light, to the wing light, like a light sail. I saw the spiral-shaped and fluted shells, which Cuvier justly compares to an elegant skiff, a boat indeed. It bears the creature which secretes it without its adhering to it. For nearly an hour the Nautilus floated in the midst of this shoal of mollusks, then I know not what fright they took. But as if at a signal every sail was furled, the arm folded, the body drawn in, the shells turned over, changing their centre of gravity, and the whole fleet disappeared under the waves. Never did the ships of a squadron manoeuvre with more unity. At that moment night fell suddenly, and the reeds, scarcely raised by the breeze, lay peaceably under the sides of the Nautilus. What a cool creature. It's got like a sail on an arm. That's so cool. Do they actually exist? This is more research from me. The next day, 26th of January, we cut the equator at the 82nd meridian and entered the northern hemisphere. During the day, a formidable troop of sharks accompanied us, terrible creatures which multiply in these seas and make them very dangerous. They were Cestratio philippi sharks, with brown backs and whitish bellies, armed with 11 rows of teeth, eyed sharks their throat being marked with a large black spot surrounded with white like an eye. There were also some Isabella sharks with rounded snouts marked with dark spots. These powerful creatures often hurled themselves at the windows of the salon with such violence as to make us feel very insecure. At such times, Ned Land was no longer master of himself. He wanted to go to the surface and harpoon the monsters, particularly certain smooth hound sharks whose mouth was studded with teeth like a mosaic, and large tiger sharks nearly six yards long the last named of which seemed to excite him more particularly. But the Nautilus, accelerating her speed, easily left the most rapid of them behind. The 27th of January, at the entrance of the vast Bay of Bengal, we met repeatedly a forbidding spectacle, dead bodies floating on the surface of the water. They were the dead of the Indian villagers, carried by the Ganges to the level of the sea, and which the vultures, not the only undertakers of the country, had not been able to devour, but the sharks did not fail to help them at their funeral work. About seven o'clock in the evening, the Nautilus, half immersed, was sailing in a sea of milk. At first sight, the ocean seemed lactified. Was it the effect of the lunar rays? No, for the moon, scarcely two days old, was still lying hidden under the horizon in the rays of the sun. The whole sky, though lit by sidereal rays, seemed black by contrast with the whiteness of the waters. Conseil could not believe his eyes and questioned me as to the cause of this strange phenomenon. Happily, I was able to answer him. It is called a milk sea, I explained. 
a large extent of white wavelets often to be seen on the coasts of Amboina and in these parts of the sea. But sir, said Conseil, can you tell me what causes such an effect? For I suppose the water is not really turned to milk. Ah, <laughs> no, my boy, and the whiteness which surprises you is caused only by the presence of myriads of infusoria, a sort of luminous little worm, gelatinous and without colour, of the thickness of a hair and whose length is not more than seven thousandths of an inch. These insects adhere to one another sometimes for several leagues. Several leagues! exclaimed Conseil. Yes, my boy, and you need not try to compute the number of these infusoria. You will not be able. For, if I am not mistaken, ships have floated on these milk seas for more than forty miles. Towards midnight, the sea suddenly resumed its usual colour, but behind us, even to the limits of the horizon, the sky reflected the whitened waves, and for a long time seemed impregnated with the vague glimmerings of an aurora borealis. So that's the end of chapter one of part two of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'm going to have a bit of my tea. And I'll be uh, having a chat with Jenny a bit later to discuss. Hello. Hello, Duncan again. Hello again. <laughs> I like this um, fiction that we've got as if you've just read the, um, the chapter rather than having read it a day, a day ago. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> but thank you for reading um, chapter one of part two. How did you find it, reading the chapter? Oh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good. It was, um, I mean, it was chock full of those tongue twister Latin names that we were talking about. And I, uh, I, uh, I quite enjoyed the challenge. Um, um, I, I thought it was quite entertaining that, uh, that Pierre sort of, uh, after ruminating briefly on, uh, on Captain Nemo potentially being out for vengeance on all of humanity, then contented himself with noodling about fishes for the rest of the chapter, which I thought was quite an entertaining uh, little contrast. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was great. It's a strange chapter, but like for a chapter that's the beginning of a whole new section of the book, I find it quite quite unusual in a way. Like you say, like he sort of ruminates on the revenging and then just talks about fish so much, and then the chapter ends so abruptly that it took me by surprise. Yeah, no, exactly. It was it felt quite weird. I was sort of expecting it to go on for a bit longer. I agree. And then, actually, it, it that also brings me back. Like, um, there are a few times where they talk about albatrosses, and I think Ned Land even shoots one at some point, right? And yeah. I keep thinking, oh, that's clearly got to be an omen, but you know, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> nothing mentioned. <laughs> I wrote that down too. So for my notes for this this chapter, I've written just saw more albatrosses, and then in brackets, killed and ate one before because I think they I think they eat the one they shoot yeah. before. Ned Ned Land shoots one. And then, of course, he eats it because he eats everything. Everything. <laughs> like, yep, that man indeed. has a ravenous hunger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, purely gustatory. There's no, uh, there's no sinister albatross-related uh, omens at all. <laughs> I feel like it might be an omen. Like, but just, like, maybe. I feel like maybe he's underlining it more. He's like, you didn't get the omen I gave you before. So here's some more albatrosses, like loads of them just uh, flying yeah. around. But they don't kill these ones, do they? They just observe them. Or do they kill them? I yeah, like they just see them this time. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Flying around. Because I think it's, it's the killing of the albatross that's the bad thing, right? Like, um, like yeah, the power. Yeah, you exactly. don't want to kill them. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> yeah, no, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I liked how you um, paused briefly in your reading, much like I often do, to discuss with yourself whether or not these animals were real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, I, I'm very sad to say I did do a bit of research about these Argonaut creatures, and unfortunately, while they do exist, and in fact they're, they're lovely things, they, they, they don't have a sail. So that was a myth. Aww. But they are real. They are real, yeah. And, and they're in fact called, the, the common name for them is Paper Nautilus, which, oh. is, which is a nice little tie-in. That's a nice little tie-in to the name of the boat. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious yes. about whether that's deliberate. I'm going I'm to guess that is deliberate. That was a deliberate choice of Jules Verne there. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> and actually, uh, also, uh, on, on my research about Argonauts um, or these um, these paper nautiluses, it turns out that uh, their little egg capsules, which are the things that give them the name paper nautilus because they're these beautiful sort of very thin paper-like shells, apparently they were discovered or it was worked out that these are actually produced by these animals by by a pioneering 19th century female biologist called Jean I don't know how to pronounce her name, unfortunately. Jean, 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 uh, Power. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, and she was she was really cool. Like she um, did a lot of interesting, interesting uh, sort of um, sea biology work. So yes, and yet she is not mentioned in any way in this book. I mean, I assume she's French from the name. So Jules Verne. What are you doing? Like, why are you not mentioning these amazing female biologists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. slap on the wrist, definitely, or more. <laughs> yeah, the metaphorical slap on the wrist for dead Jules Verne. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I had another bit. Like, my one other note for this chapter was like in the beginning. There was a weird bit. I had, I had to. I listened to you reading it, and then I had to go back and read it again because I wasn't sure what it was saying. The very, very beginning, I'm just going to quote it. Um, Pierre says that Nemo's life was passing even to his grave and then talks about how he's going to be buried in the coral bits. Like, is Nemo dying? Is that a reference to him dying in, in the moment? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, in the previous chapter, he mentions briefly that he's been injured. Like when whatever it was exploded that killed the other guy, Nemo got hit by something. So I'm wondering, like, is he dying? In a slightly huh. understated way. Yeah, I mean, I, hmm. I didn't inter. I must admit, I didn't interpret it that way. I was just thinking, oh, he's in a, he's in a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a contemplating death kind of moment. Um, yeah. And, you know, but yeah, that's a good point because he did say he was also struck by this exploding bit of machinery. So. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I feel like he would have. I feel, I do feel like Pierre would have would have would have commented on it in a bit more detail. He seems like yeah. the kind of chap who wouldn't let any details like that uh, go without comment. I would think so, especially in relation to Nemo, like and Nemo's physical presence or appearance. Like if he was physically injured in some way, I feel like Pierre would be commenting on it. Yeah, he'd definitely. Be very aware of the physical presence of this man, and I feel like he would be commenting on it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it so much. I just love that, like Captain Nemo has like kidnapped these men, and he's you know he has some sort of like love interest, in my opinion, in Pierre, and he's given him like a nice cabin. He's shown off his like fantastic ship and his lovely library. 
yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely think it was Nemo that carried Pierre, you know, after he'd been drugged to yeah. his bedroom and tucked him in gently into bed. Definitely, yeah. definitely <laughs> <laughs> uh, Also, I had a question for you. I was wondering, I was musing on this and wondered what you thought about it. But like, when do you think, so Pierre is writing this story, like at what point in the future is he writing it? Because he's saying at one point he has no idea, in this chapter, yeah. he has no idea what's happening. And I'm like, are you writing this in the future? Like, don't you know now what's happened? But no. Yeah, it's, is he writing it the day after or something? Strange. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because and then he also borrows bits from you know from uh, from Conseil, doesn't he? Like he's sort of, it's a strange kind of mix of things. Yeah, yeah I, I must think... admit, I'm sort of putting it in an indeterminate future where it feels like he's mm -hmm. sort of reflecting back on it when some momentous event has just happened. But I don't know how long in the future that is. Yeah, I think it's unclear. And I, I wonder if it might be a problem with the translation, because obviously this is written in French originally. Uh, and a lot of the translations are apparently very iffy. And I think that maybe this one is not a great one. So it might be a translation issue, a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Hard yeah. to say. Oh, yeah. oh talking of Conseil, though, like, who is Conseil? Because Conseil has just, like, memorized all these scientific facts about all the fish. And the animals, like he's very knowledgeable on the creatures in the sea, more so than Pierre in some ways. But like he's a servant-ish; he's just following yeah. Pierre around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I almost wonder whether he's like I can imagine Pierre sort of pontificating about something, and Conseil just sort of writing down everything he says. You know, sort of he's the he's the the, the what's the word? I mean, you know, like the scribe for Pierre's wanderings. So yeah. I wonder whether he's just kind of, you know, absorbed all that and then maybe goes back and corrects him every now and then, you know, like he's... <laughs> he's That's what of... I'm imagining, that he's like, he's writing up the scientific papers, like Pierre's just musing away in the corner yeah. and Conseil's the one who writes it up in proper scientific language for publication. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's a PhD student, you know. <laughs> he's a PhD student. Exactly. And he's like, oh, no, my supervisor has jumped, has like fallen into the ocean. I must jump in after him. Of course. That would be. Yep, yeah, of course. Definitely. I mean, yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> definitely. That's why he doesn't have a last name. That's why he has like very little free will. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you don't, you know, <laughs> you're not anyone until you've got your PhD. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's great. Uh, Sorry, what do you, last last point, but what do you think is going to happen in the future of the books? Now, you've, if I, I think you've read this before, but ignore that and just sort of, from what's happened so far, what do you think is going to happen? I, um, I'm sorry, Jen, you, you've broken up a bit there. I couldn't, I couldn't hear your question. Oh, yeah. So um, what do you think is going to happen in the future of the book? I, um, I honestly don't know. So it's funny. I, I remember as a kid, I had like the ki a kid's version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with these amazing pictures of things. I, I remember the very vague outline of the story, but it's kind of like the actual details are not matching what my memory was. So I actually have no idea what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I'm sort of like, I feel like I've got a lot of coming back. Um, you know, I, I think... 
you know, Nemo's going to try. I, I reckon Nemo's going to try something that's too big for him, you know, and he's and he's going to get in trouble, and then there's going to be some sort of tragic, uh, tragic scene. But I don't know exactly what it will contain. Yeah, that's my my <laughs> guess. But I, yeah, I, I, it's it's funny. Like I'm sort of, ooh, I don't remember this bit. Um, it's it's uh, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. So my guess is I yeah. think Pierre is going to betray him in some way. Like, I think Pierre's going to find out that he's, he's um, been doing bad things, killing everyone. Um, and then he's going to somehow betray him by, like, I don't know, turning off the engine or something mm. when, there's, um, when, like, a Navy ship is nearby and Pierre and Conseil and Ned Land will escape the Nautilus as it's sinking and Nemo will go down with the ship. That is, like, my, my prediction. Sounds pretty pretty light. Maybe maybe he'll sort of jam the mechanism for closing the hatch or something, mm. so that he can't he can't go down. Yeah, mm. Mm. I think you might be onto something there. Yeah, I think you might be on. Yeah, because I feel like you've yeah. got it's building up to this like big moment of dissolution, right? Like Pierre is really into Nemo. He's mildly inconvenienced about having been trapped in the ship, but not as much as I would expect. And he seems to be fine with the fact he's no. been drugged problem with that but i think that when he discovers yeah. nemo's being like you know torpedoing other ships and killing everyone that's going to be a moment for him when he's going to be like ah man like you're a brilliant mind in a beautiful body but i just can't support this anymore that's what i think is going to happen yeah i mean i think you're right i think even even pierre's got a sort of limit exactly yeah and there's only so many fabulous fish and shells and things that he can observe and eat to make it worthwhile yeah it's my prediction but we're gonna find out so we'll stop talking together now but thank you so much for joining me it's been a lot of fun i've enjoyed talking through the story with you i'd like to thank duncan for joining me for this episode that was a lot of fun and tomorrow I'm going to continue by myself, sadly, but tomorrow I will read chapter two of part two, which is called A Novel Proposal of Captain Nemo's. Ooh, what's he going to suggest? Join me tomorrow to find out. <laughs>